Okay, we've been dealing with the Christians in the state over the past few weeks. <clears throat> Oops. We dealt with uh, so what we might call general perspectives when we were in the big picture. Big picture is just too long a journey. I tried to speed it up, which made it worse. So, sorry. <laughs> so, we're just going to move on from the big picture because that's really stuff of regular preaching and teaching anyway. But just know that the kingdom of God is what the Bible focuses on. And so when we talk about Christians in the state, that fundamental dichotomy between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of the kingdom of God must always be maintained in your mind and heart. If you don't do that, you're going to find yourself drifting into worldly issues and concerns that in and of themselves are significant, but in comparison to the kingdom of heaven, they pale. Um, and that's some of what we'll again be looking at today. The New, New Testament really focuses on that. So we want to start briefly today, just uh, cover very quickly just some examples from the New Covenant directives, what I'm calling them, of milieu, demeanor, perspective, focus, persecution, civil disobedience, and self-defense. Just a scripture or two out of that to understand what these things are because it is out of these uh, passages of scripture and out of these directives and concerns that we'll be answering the questions. And hopefully we'll get to some good questions today. Milieu. What do we mean by milieu, Christian milieu? This is something we have to have in our background when we think of, you know, Christians in the state. Milieu means the social environment around us, just where we live, what is it like, all right? And in one of our flagship passages, Titus chapter 3, the third verse, uh, after it says you're supposed to, you know, be obedient to governments, after you're supposed to be a good citizen and a good neighbor, It says, for we were also once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Do you all remember a time when that's who you were? Now, some of you were very nice at it. Some of you were very not nice at it. But that's what we were. And that's the world we live in. And and those passages of Scripture that we have listed there, you know, you look at Isaiah 1 and 2 and uh, 3, I mean, those are really hard passages to read through um, because all they do is just outline the, just the decrepitness of that social order of the day. Micah was just, the background of it was just this, this wicked world, the wickedness of human beings. You know, Matthew 24 talks about the wickedness. Romans 1, 28 through 32, just a whole list, a vice list. 1 Corinthians 5, 19 through 13, just talks about what the world is. I mean, so we have to understand that when we start talking about you know, human government and, and the world and our relationship to it, we're living in a real world of sin and darkness. And that means the people who are running the government that you are under are going to be what? They're going to be full of sin and darkness. Now, there might be a lot of constraining common grace going on, which has happened in America in the past. But as God withdraws that common grace, you're you're just going to have a whole nation of people that just go back into the darkness of paganism. And that's what's happening in America. And I just can't emphasize enough that if you're going to think that you're going to fix America, remember what you're trying to fix. You're not trying to fix a few laws or a few policies. You're trying to fix 350 million people who are, for the most part, born in sin and darkness and are happy to stay there. So this idea of fixing America, get real about it. 
Don't be naive, be realistic. The problem with America is not the government. The problem with America is the people. Now, if you think you can change them, fine, but how are you gonna change them? Try to turn them into conservatives? Is that, is that your goal? Is that gonna get anywhere? Again, there was a fellow who said, I don't counsel unbelievers. Isn't that interesting? It was a counselor, Jay Adams, one of the most significant counselor, uh, I don't know, person, you know, in, uh, 30, 40 years ago, and he said, I don't counsel unbelievers. That sounds really harsh, doesn't it? But you get some unbelievers come to you and they're having marriage problems, what are you going to do? Well, you should love each other. You should not lie. You should become Christians if you want a good marriage. You see, that, that's the point. Is how are you going to counsel unbelievers who are born in, in, in bondage to sin? That they're going to somehow have a good life. We are evangelists. We are not counselors. The church is an evangelistic institution, not a counseling institution. And we are not here to invest ourselves in the political machinations of the world. It is not our focus. It is not our goal. So we were once these things. And this is the world in which we live in. And if... <clears throat> We maintain an idealism regarding people or human government, we will certainly and ultimately fail. We must be sober-minded. We must be realist. Someone says, well, Steve, you're a pessimist. I'm not being a pessimist. I'm saying what the Bible says about the human race and what we experience in our lifetime. Second thing that we want to address is demeanor. And by demeanor, we mean our outward behavior or bearing, our, our personal human interface to the world and our Christian attitude and demeanor is talked about everywhere in the New Testament. This is a big, giant, huge deal. So, for instance, you know, in the very passage of Romans there, if possible, as far as it depends on you, Romans 12, 18 through 21, live peaceably with all, with all men. They say with all, but, you know, it's with all, yes. Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will pay, says the Lord. Nothing wrong with vengeance, it just doesn't belong to us. We do not have the, pers- the proper perspectives. We are not in touch with all the facts. For us to render vengeance is not justice. It's just raw vengeance. For God, it's justice. His vengeance is a justice. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. The book of Proverbs, very, uh, still very much used in the New Testament to advocate for Christian demeanor. Do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. This is our demeanor, and there's just all these other passages that are listed, and probably a whole bunch more besides that, that just talk about how we're to live in this world. So in answering some of the questions, we're going to be referring to Christian demeanor. This is a Christian demeanor issue. You know, how are you supposed to be living? Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursuing peace with all men is right there with, if you don't do this, you won't see the Lord, okay? This is, this is not... A, a suggestion on the part of the writer of Hebrews. This is an imperative. The sanctification without which we will not see the Lord in any way that's good, in any way that's eternally good. We have to maintain, and peace, just, we are to be the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, that's our demeanor. Not being embroiled in the political machinations of the world that just end up in debate and angst. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Another, you know, James, another passage on demeanor. And how many true political engagements and discussions have you been in where there was disagreement that you went away just all peace and happy? I mean, 
These things are big issues, and they do go deep. I watch, I have to, have to watch, you know, a, a, a wicked nation dismantle a great nation. And it's just hard to watch, but the wrath of man will not achieve the righteousness of God. And it's just good to stay away from it, because uh, it just, just tends to vexation. Perspective, in this case, it's specific perspective. This is perspective of a new covenant directive. We've talked about in general how we're to see government, but here in the new covenant, we have upon us obligations, perspective and directive. And, you know, just Jesus in saying, I mean, my kingdom is not of this world. How, how, how simple is that? The kingdom of God is not of what? This world. So when you look at human government, I mean, what are you supposed to do? It's like, okay, I'm going to fix America. For who? For what? Are you going to go door to door trying to advocate for Blexit and other things, which I think are good things, great things. But as Christians, is that our focus? Am I going to go door to door advocating for Blexit? Am I going to go door to door advocating for uh, conservatism? Or am I going to go to door to door advocating for a reconciliation with a living God and a kingdom that will be around forever. See, that's, that's, the, that, that's what's at stake here in a lot of this being embroiled in the issues that are, that are going on. Focus. The New Covenant has some directives about focus, and they're significant, and they're, they're specific. And here's one that uh, sort of may be overlooked. I had overlooked it in my list, and had encountered in the last few weeks just thinking about it, but we, have, we must not lose the sense of the urgency of the gospel. Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 7, 29, the question about marriage and marriage relationships, and if you're not married, should you get married? And he gives his advice here and there. But then he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 29, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as those they had none, though the, those, the, as though they had none. And those who weep, as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice, as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy, as though they did not possess. And those who use the world, as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. And so just think in life in general, yes, we're to enjoy the things of life, but we're not to be fully invested in them, because the world fully invests itself in these things. Things which are passing away. And they fight and claw each other to death to try to have the most of these things they can. And, and Paul says, God has given these things that are a part of the human race that's being distorted by sin. But as Christians, we live in them, but they are not the, the total framework in which we live or focus of which we live. The form of this world is passing away. And so if we think that we're going to fix America, remember the form of this world is passing away. Its world is neither our home or our destination. We must be careful not to get mired or entangled in its ultimately pointless struggles. See, folks, we'll use the example of the Titanic, you know, polishing brass on a sinking ship. And those who are more theonomistic, those who want to fix America, will mock that statement. But what is wrong with that statement? Is the world a sinking ship or not? Someone tell me. The world is a sinking ship. And to say you shouldn't be worried about polishing the brass on a sinking ship is actual wisdom. It's not defeatism. It's wisdom. 
Get in the lifeboats. That is our goal. We're the guys on the ship telling everybody to get in the lifeboats because the Titanic is going down. Do not let people take that wisdom away from you through sophistry. We know the stakes are high. We know the issues for our children are, are just hard to look at. But my brothers and sisters, your children can go to hell in a wonderful democracy just as much as in the Soviet bloc countries. What's your real concern for your children? Is it that they have a great life or is it that they find that Jesus Christ, the living and the true God, because for them also the form of this world is passing away. And this is the perspective we have to have in our minds and in our hearts if we're to be true to the word of God, which is the mind of Christ on this issue. Persecution. Chris, I'm sure, is dealing with that because it's all over in 1 Peter. So I tried to avoid grabbing any 1 Peter passages. Um, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Demeanor. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm, one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Our unity and our energy centers in the gospel, not political machinations or debate. Philosophizing this and that and the other to a sinking ship, a world that's going down. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. When we see the opposition, when we see our, in our country dynamics now where people are trying to rebuild the Tower of Babel just as fast as they can, replacing sanity with insanity, replacing morality with immorality, calling good evil and evil good at levels we couldn't even have imagined even six months ago. When we see all this, we see them opposing the gospel, which means us. You're going to get opposed. If you live godly and, and, and carry the truth with you, you're going to be opposed. It's a manifestation to them, to that world, not that they're confused, but they are consigned to destruction. This isn't about confusion. This isn't about political debate. This isn't about political theory. This is about you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. It's a sign of destruction for them, and that's, but of us, it's salvation for you, and that is from God. For to you it has been granted for, for Christ's sake. Granted. This is what the Lord Jesus has given you as a gift. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Do you want that gift? Is that something you shy away from? Again, for your children, I understand that, particularly ladies. I know it's hard. I mean, that's why Peter directly addresses it. Women not being put in fear in these matters. It's because, you know, you're thinking, what about my children? That's a natural response. I've been watching a lot of the vet shows lately because when I'm up at night putting these slides together, a lot of it's just kind of grunt work. So I was watching the vet last night in, uh, from uh, the Yukon vet. <clears throat> so it was kind of cool. They had all these uh, creatures from up there. And, <clears throat> and I forgot what I was doing. It was such a cool show. Uh, that's what I was saying. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, there's vets. I was watching the vet, and 
whatever, whatever is going to, it was going to be a really good illustration, but I lost it. All right. <laughs> it's granted to us on behalf of Christ to suffer for his name. To be able to speak with Paul and he can show you all his stripes in heaven. You say, hey, 39 stripes saved one a whole bunch of times. What does that look like in the end? I'm betting he's not going to ask his back to get fixed. What do you think? Because those are marks of honor that live forever. Are you looking for those marks? Or are you afraid for them? What about your children? Do you want them to be Christians? Do you want them to have those marks too? Live, live in faith, both for yourself and for your children. Because who can better take care of your kids, you or God? Because you only get them for a little while, and then they're gone. And who's better at taking care of them, you or God? Experiencing the same conflict in me, which you saw in me and now here to be in me, Paul was in jail, Paul was afflicted, he was beaten, he was this, he was that. Do you want those marks? It's granted for Christ's sake, it's been given to us to have these blessings. Let me it's just say this too. I mean, just looking at verse 30, experiencing the same conflict. Oftentimes we think of the Apostle Paul. He's like, oh, well, he wasn't married. He didn't have children. You know, of course, we can't live like him. Well, these Philippians were. Now, of Amen. course, they weren't traveling everywhere like he was, but they were. So much so they had opponents and suffering. So, you know, and I've reflected on this. I was reading Luke this past week or maybe it was a week before, but anyway, where Jesus says, woe to you and all men speak well of you. And that's a, such, a, uh, such a searching statement, isn't it? Do we have people that don't speak well of us because of our clarity and our allegiance to Jesus? Um, it, we, don't, we don't seek opposition, but we're so clear that it will come. And so that's the question, is it coming to us, at least to some degree? If it's not, that could be a really bad sign. So take this stuff to heart. You know, people need the Lord. And that's why we do it. We don't do it so that we can go show how tough we are. We do it because people are perishing. Right? And they need Christ. And it, it could mean a lot of hatred. I don't know if any of you have seen that documentary, Paint the Wall Black. I highly recommend it. Um, I won't say much more than that other than this is a family-owned business that got shut down because they stood for the gospel. It was a, it's an amazing documentary. I highly recommend it. But just this boldness that you need because people are perishing, and people were getting saved through it. So, paint the wall black. Amen. Amen. Good word, brother. Um, so, civil disobedience is something we'll be, be talking to, and, and we're all you know, familiar with a lot of these things. And I just picked, you know, but Peter and John answered and said to the Pharisees that were Sanhedrin that was around them trying to suppress the gospel, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. I think, I mean... Don't need much commentary on that. Civil disobedience to the clear commands of God is a mandate. That is, disobedience to the state when it is in contrary to the commands of God is a mandate. There's no question. Some of the questions that come up, I mean, we're going to look at them and we're going to answer them, and it's good to see the questions, it's good to answer them, but the questions I think are pretty obvious, you know, you know, should uh, if if the if the state comes in and tells us we can't have a worship service, what should we do? Yeah, it's kind. Of, I mean, this is not hard, you know. So should we, you know, try to accommodate them as much as we can? Because you just don't want the state breathing down your neck. You know, sticking your 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 chin out there and saying "sock me" is not the best way to deal with the state. 
Try to accommodate them as much as possible, but it gets to it as much as in you. Lies be at peace with all men, but there's a point where you can no longer be peaceful. It's just, well, you get to that point. And the midwives, Rahab, all the prophets, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jesus, the apostles, all of these were confronted by the state in one way or another or even by false prophets, and they had to go against the civil authority um, in order to honor God. Then their self-defense kind of, I, I was trying to not deal with this. I kind of stuck it in there because someone kept pestering me with it, so I said, okay, I'll do it. But I don't know if we'll ever get to it, but uh, self-defense, we, we'll be dealing with it sometime or another, but it's just one of those things that's kind of difficult to address. But Nehemiah chapter 4, 17 through 18, those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. So here they are, they've come back from captivity, they're they're there under Nehemiah, and they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And, of course, they have the opponents uh, coming after them. And, but this is a group of people that really wasn't some really well-organized national entity anymore because they've just come back, and they're kind of a motley crew, and they're kind of a, a loose band of citizens, and here they have this civil defense, as it were, this militia, because it was the only way they as a group could survive. So it's a, it's a good passage to look at when it comes to uh, those things. So, milieu, demeanor, perspective, focus, persecution, civil disobedience, self-defense. These are the passages and others like them that we'll, we will be drawing from to answer questions. So, to the questions. Chris, you want to pray and ask the Lord yeah. to be with us? Yeah, let's pray before we get into these questions. <clears throat> Father, just give us the joy um, remind us of, of what we have in Jesus, um, what we once did not have. Um, and let this Amen. love that we've experienced in Christ compel us to persuade men to be reconciled to you. Um, Lord, we can get so captivated by a lot of good things. Um, the strongest marriage possible, the strongest family possible, the most well-rounded cultural experience we can have as families and so on and so forth and all the while we miss the most important thing Amen. which is seek the kingdom first and Lord we just pray that you'd reveal to us all where we are not doing that Lord where we have begin, we've begun to marginalize the kingdom Lord help us all to have a resolve to stand in one spirit for the faith of the gospel all we do would be for the faith of the gospel um, Lord please help us um, all of us. And Lord, obviously we, we enjoy the things you've created. You've told us that, it's, that we can and that we should, but Lord, please help us to not use and, and be fully invested in them such that we, get, we drift away and, and we just become nice, humanitarian, family-oriented people. Amen. Lord, we want to be gospel-focused. And uh, Lord, as we get into these questions, we pray you give Steve and I insight, wisdom, clarity, love, all of these things to help your people um, so that we all, again, can be unified and have answers um, in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we tried to organize these questions sort of in little groups. I don't know that they're prioritized as well as they could be, but tried to organize them, and there were several questions surrounding what is the purpose of government. 
So uh, question number one, and we've got answers and references galore here, so he's got to keep up with them. The first question, what evils or evildoers should we list and support the government punishing? That is, example, incarceration of murderers. And uh, so this was a reference. I don't know if they gave the reference, but in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, it says, you know, as it does in Romans 13, that the government is there to uh, punish evildoers and to give praise to those that do well. So this person wanted a list of evils and evildoers uh, that the government should be punishing. Well, the first place to really go if we're ever going to deal with what is the purpose of temporary human government, remember the ship is sinking, it's temporary, okay? Um, Genesis 9:5. surely I will require your blood, lifeblood, from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whosoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he him. For in, for in the image of God he made man, sorry. I get mixed up between what I remember in the ASV and what I'm reading in the New American Standard. <clears throat> All right, so when we talked about human government, we talked about that the, the basis for it is in Genesis 9. And the thing focused on in Genesis 9 is if you kill somebody, you're going to be killed. Capital punishment. And the reason that was so is because what was the history before the flood? Murder everywhere. Despotism everywhere. Arbitrary thuggery everywhere. And murder and violence was in the earth. And God said, okay, the earth isn't going to work if we let this happen. You know, I can't bring my purposes of redemption to pass if this is going on. And so God institutes in common grace human government, at least what we see to be human government. And its foundations are the recognition, image of God, the recognition that life is sacred, given by God, not to be taken by anybody but God. All right? And you could sort of deduce from this also that life has with it a basic fundamental liberty. And so in our Declaration of Independence, it's really a great statement that God you know, has given us life, liberty, and the original wording actually was property. They changed it to pursuit of happiness, which I think was unfortunate, but I think they thought, well, let's make it bigger than just property, but because they said pursuit of happiness in the American mind today, pursuit of happiness means what? You know, I have, I have the right to do anything I want to do. And, and what they were trying to say is that the government has the responsibility to establish life, liberty, property, happiness, whatever, um, and that uh, it's supposed to adjudicate things when things get messy. When someone starts to take someone's life, all right, we're going to adjudicate it with capital punishment. When someone starts to mess with someone's liberty, okay, we're going to adjudicate that, you know property, fraud, things like that. And so, so government is there to try to put a framework of at least some common grace, basic core righteousness and civility in society. That's the purpose of government. So what are the things that belong to that? Well, the first one, of course, is what? Preservation of human life. Next, where would anybody go in the Bible? Anybody... Think of some places in the Bible that tell you what a government should institute. Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. 
Exodus 20 through 23, there was 10 commandments and then all these little civil laws and criminal laws and things like that, right? Whole, whole pile of them. So 10, 10 commandments is good until you get to a certain part of it and we'll, we'll deal with that in a minute. Um, but <clears throat> there are also some things that we have is you shall not bear false report, Exodus 23.1. You shall not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the messages in doing evil. You shall... <clears throat> nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside from a multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in a dispute. Oh, wait a minute, social justice doesn't work in the Old Testament, huh? All that Amos stuff really wasn't the social justice of today's concept of equity. If a poor man's poor, then we should judge in his favor simply because he's poor. We're going to see statement after statement, that's just not true. All right? And so God, when he's instituting laws, rules, you know, among the nation of Israel... He, he's very much focused on justice as a framework in which they live. Right. And so, just to reinforce that, Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor, <clears throat> nor defer to the great, but you are to judge uh, your neighbor fairly. So today's social justice movement, again, is just so off base. Because it says the poor deserve something because they're poor. It's like, no. The governments are not there to distribute wealth and redistribute wealth. That's not what they're there for. They're there to adjudicate matters of right and wrong. That's why our country has gone into insanity, because we've moved from a government based in law to a government based in a, in a concept of cosmic justice that just sort of floats around. Whatever the judge feels like. I mean, you have judges, that one of the big problems in corporate law that they have is, is that these corporate lawyers go into the courtroom knowing that they can become accountable for whatever the judge interprets the law to be. Now try doing that. So you wonder why corporate America has 50,000 rules and regs and HR is like, you do anything a little bit off and you're gone? is because they get taken to court, they're going to lose millions of dollars over some judge who's just, you know, wandering around in some, his own personal world of cosmic justice instead of dealing with clear law and order. Now, if you're the person, you know, getting the millions of dollars, you think that's a great thing, <laughs> but wait till it happens to you. Then you're going to go, oh, no, I want law and order. Someone comes into your house and steals something from your house, and you're like, man, this is wrong. That was a $1,000 tractor they just stole. And, you know, it gets back, and, and, and the judge says, well, yeah, you know, you already got a lot of stuff. This person doesn't. It was okay for him to steal that tractor. As a matter of fact, we're just going to award him the tractor. That would be cosmic justice, but it wouldn't be the justice you were looking for, you see. So that's what's going on, is that, uh, and God is very clear. Deuteronomy 1.16, then I changed your judges at that time, saying, charge your judges. Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear men, for the judgment is from the Lord. The case that is too hard for you shall you bring to me, Moses said, and I will hear it. I command you that time all the things that you should do. So Moses is rehearsing how uh, his father-in-law Jethro said, hey, you can't judge this, everybody. There's you know, a million people here. So you need to start partialing this out to other judges. Deuteronomy 16, 18, you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God has given you. You shall create a government, appoint for yourself. You settle in a town, what do you do? Get together 
and you appoint for yourself a judge. You set up a civil government, all right? <clears throat> and ju- appoint for yourselves a judge of the people of righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice shall you pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So this is the purpose of all human government. There are more passages we could read, but um, you all get the point. So what things should a government be judging? Anybody got a basic set? Quick, Ten Commandments. Life, theft. Okay. All right. Well, wait a minute. Is that what the Ten Commandments starts with? Okay, so this, this again, does Genesis, uh, uh, sorry, what righteous actor, actor should we list support the government praising? We should look at this. So what should the government support and encourage? I mean, all through the prophets, what? Take care of the fatherless and the widow. Well, what does that mean? It means that you should have a civil government that acknowledges that taking care of the fatherless and the widow is a good thing to be doing, a good pursuit. And if you get in a country like ours where we're going to take all the tax money from everybody who has money and put it in a big pool and spend it, well, it should be directed to things that are going to be good, legitimate social causes. Right? There's not, nothing wrong with that. I mean, our government's probably taken it way too far and has distorted it and perverted it, but other than that, it's, you know, it's okay for a government to provide a framework in which that happens. Does Genesis 9... And 9, 5 through 6 established theocracies where, like Israel, Exodus 19 through 24, God directly exerts his rule. I need some answers from you all on this one. Is the Genesis 9 government that is envisioned the same as Exodus 19 through 24, where God has direct rule and the first commandment Second commandment, third commandment, fourth commandment are all about your relationship to God. No, because Exodus is given to a covenant community. And Genesis is more broadly speaking about the world. Okay, amen. So the answer, which is an excellent one, is that Genesis, or Exodus 19 through 24 is a covenant relationship. These people are said to be taken out of the world. God specifically says, what I'm about to do with you, I'm not doing with the other nations. They become a paradigm for salvation. They become a, a model and a, you know, types and shadows for a lot of things, and that's why God did it. And they become models, types, and shadows for a new covenant to come in Christ, not for a covenant of grace. There's no covenant of grace in the Bible. But there is a new covenant that fulfills all these things and realizes all these things. But Genesis 9, prior to Exodus, is just about the general things of the world. That's why it's so limited in its statement. Wouldn't you wish that Genesis 9 had like about 50 more verses in it telling us exactly what this means, right? But it doesn't. Because basically, as Paul says, you know, in uh, Acts uh, 17, he's talking to them, uh, to the uh, philosophers. He said, you know, in times past, God let the nations walk in their own ways. He overlooked, that is, he just really, the, the Greek literally says winked at, that is, He didn't take stock in what the world was doing because that was not his purpose. So whatever they did with government was not so much fine with God, 
We see in the prophets he clearly gets concerned about it, but it was not his focus of working in redemptive history. And so Genesis 9 is a common grace scenario. And to try to you know, say that America you know, is supposed to, what, be governed by God, then you better start instituting, you know, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no idols. Is that what we're going to start doing? See, so it's interesting that Christians today who are advocating that it's a Christian duty to fix the government, they don't advocate theonomy. All right? Now, what is theonomy? They're starting to, but theonomy comes from two Greek words, theos and nomos. Theos meaning God, nomos meaning law, so it's God law. It's a hypothetical Christian form of government in which society is ruled by divine law. Theonomists hold that divine law, including the judicial laws of the Old Testament, should be observed by modern societies. And my brothers and sisters, the emphasis to fix America is always going to go in that direction. It has to. And yet we innately know that we cannot be and should not be enacting laws in America that say you should worship the Christian God. Does anybody think we should be doing that? That we should have Congress telling us what God to worship? Should we be doing that? Anybody? Yes? No? Exactly. Once you start legislating for one, you're legislating for another. And, you know, whose God are you going to worship? Well, the state, the American state, actually has chosen a God. And it's not Islam, and it's not Christianity. It's not Buddhism. It's what? Man. (laughs) Secular humanism. Okay? So the state is actually now in the business of legislating religion, the religion of secular humanism, and that's what's wrong with America. It was inevitable to happen. There is no way you can escape this. Is secular humanism a religion? Okay. Does it have a view of God? Does it have a view of knowledge and truth and where that comes from? It's not the Christian view, is it? It's all the enlightenment reborn in the modern secular state. Does it have a view of right and wrong? Does that view of right and wrong, is that solid and rooted, and, or is it a moving target? You see? Once you let go of God, you now let go of any kind of government that can have any kind of foundations, and that's what's happened in America. God created all of us equal has been lost. It's been reinterpreted. There's no really true God. Religion is a matter of personal opinion, not a matter of existence and reality. And so we have secular humanism that has controlled the public school system for close to 70 years, if not more, and is churning out what? Good old secular humanists. It's really good at that. It's really crummy at turning out mathematicians and you know, uh, scientists and things like that, but it's really good at turning out secular humanists because that's its goal. Everybody sees the American education systems. Oh, well, the education system's failing. We need more, mo- more money. It's like, you know how long that's been going on? 
The the one-room schoolhouses produced some of the greatest men in the history of the world. It's not a problem of money. It's a problem of mindset. It's a problem of worldview. And it's a problem that the purpose of the American education system is in the hands of the secular humanist, a tool to shape good citizens for the new world order. That is its purpose. Everything else is very secondary. Now, in developing countries or in China, they focus on the things that you know, make for good scientists and good engineers and good people to build things and good things, people that make a good economy, while they also propagandize them with the Communist Party. In America, we're propagandized with secular humanism. Because if you think about it, you go to start a school and you're going to have a thousand students come to your school. Do you have to have a worldview? Can you say worldviews don't matter? That we're going to educate a thousand kids of different ages without any concern for is there or is not a God? What is the basis of all knowledge and truth? What is the basis of, can you, can you educate without a worldview? You can't do it, right? And so my question is, how should a modern secular state deal with the challenge of religious pluralism, that is, its citizens adhering to more than one religion? Is there a solution even possible to that question? Your job, we're going to do, what is it, sim civilization? These are some questions that weren't on the sheet, sorry. <laughs> um, sim civilization, and you've got to build a country. And I want to see you build a country with 350 million people in it where you're going to let everybody believe what they want about God and you're never going to touch that topic. And, oh, when some of them say that you know, human life has absolute value before the living God, well, we're not going to have abortion now. But then others say, no, no, you know, human life is just the process of you know, millions and billions of years of time and chance, and you know, we're just really blobs of protoplasm. What's wrong with abortion? See, when it comes to the very most significant reason for which God gave human government the innate and inherent value of human life, a secular government has no foundations to maintain that. Their worldview will not allow them to do that. And when the secular government basically says that a a humanistic worldview is the default worldview, and everything else is interesting and will be as tolerant as we can, But there's a point at which we can no longer be tolerant because we don't believe life has absolute value in the image of God. And we don't believe that sexuality has been defined by God. We don't believe that that the science of X and XY chromosomes, that that really is significant anymore. It's your gender preference that counts because, see, that's our secular humanism. And your Christian worldview now is starting to come in collision with it. Pardon? Pardon? The flaw of? A flaw, a flaw. Okay. Oh, flaw is an error. Sorry. I thought you were looking for, I was looking for a word on the page here. <laughs> Sorry. It's an error. It's a, you know. And, and so all of a sudden, when it comes to the right to life, what is the family? 
What about property? God says you shall not steal. A secular human government now says you should redistribute wealth equitably because there is no real right to property. Property is to be defined by whatever the government says it belongs to. That's called Marxism, by the way, in case you didn't know. And so we are in a crisis in America where the secularists successfully, completely disconnected government from God, which was never what the founders envisioned. And now that they're disconnected from God, they're just out here floating around because they have no foundations for anything other than current opinion and philosophy. 350 million Americans, for the most part, think like this. How are you going to fix that? So when people say, we got to do something, we got to fix America, we got to do this, if the church, I mean, I've heard statements like this, and it's like, well, if the church would do its job, then America wouldn't be in the mess it's in. I'm like, really? Where do you get that kind of a statement from the Bible? That's the most absurd statement. The church is not a failure. The church is supposed to be proclaiming Jesus Christ and has been for 2,000 years. And has been doing so in a battle and struggle of the ages between the prince of darkness and the kingdom of light. And there has been casualty after casualty. And there has been battles that have been lost, but the war is being won. But it's a battlefield, my friends. And if you say, oh, no, it should be a nice you know, garden in the park, no. It's a bloody spiritual battlefield. And to try to assess the church as a failure because it's gone through battle after battle after battle with the prince of darkness and all his minions, to say that the church's job is to somehow keep the earth going well and having a nice day, that is not the job of the church. Never was and never will be. And it's not the job of individual Christians. If God calls you and puts you in a position like Daniel, where you have influence, great. But as I read the book of Daniel, I do not see him converting even Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was forced by God to say that God was God. Nebuchadnezzar was not a saved person. I did not see Daniel converting all the 120 satraps when Persia took over. I I didn't see that, did you? As a matter of fact, they were throwing him in the lion's den. They were scheming against him. Daniel is the example of what a Christian is supposed to be in the secular state, and it's not to change the state. It's to witness for God in the midst of it. So how does a secular state, if you're going to do Sim USA, how would you build the United States of America where you don't go telling Muslims it's against the law to worship Islam? And still can tell a Muslim that there are basic moral foundations that you must live by. So you see this this whole thing about folks 
just promoting that, you know, we've, we've got this desperate state of America and we've got to do something. And I'm like, okay, what can I do? Because I, I see it. I feel the desperation. But I'm like, what can I do? Well, I can vote. And that didn't work out this time. It might work out in the future. But, H, you know, that H.R. 1 bill that basically makes, uh, you know, voter fraud to be enfranchised across all 50 states, it's going to make that even tougher. Um, but what can I do? Be full of angst? Be full of frustration? Go talk to my next-door neighbors? Put signs in my yard to anger my next-door neighbors? I mean, my next-door neighbors have no problems putting signs in their yard that anger me. (laughs) Should I be returning the favor? As Christians, this is just not the... We just don't live in this political arena. We just don't. We live far above it. We're seated with Christ at the right hand of God. So before you, know, you take up any of these mantras about what Christians could do with a secular state, think it through all the way what that is saying. Okay, here's a real question from somebody else. Those are my three questions <laughs> that I had. Okay, just because our Constitution or amendments laws protect and allow something, i.e. the Second Amendment, does that mean it's right for us to do? I thought that was interesting they chose the Second Amendment. Chris, you got anything to say on it? Mm, just because our Constitution allows it, does it mean it's right? It's legal. Certainly legal for us to have a gun. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say it's legal. Does it, is it right or righteous to have a gun? If that's what you mean, I mean, that's up to the individual. I, I really don't know what to say about that. I have a gun. I know Steve's got a gun or some guns. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know that <clears throat> it's, really up to, it's really up to the individual. Um, I don't know what more to really say about it. Of course, this starts to go into self-defense, um, which is one of the reasons that the Second Amendment exists. It also exists to to overthrow tyrants should they become tyrannical, those sorts of things. But, of course, that's not our mission. We don't go there, which I think we're all in agreement of. At least I hope we are. If we're not, come talk to me. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I think this touches on self-defense, and we haven't talked about that yet. So Yeah, that's the last item. Right. (laughs) So it's legal, yeah. It's not sin if you have a gun. What is it? Well, maybe do you want to? Maybe we can talk. About, that's a big topic. Maybe we can talk about that afterwards. Yeah, two do, two documents that define the foundation of our government and our our national unity is the Declaration of Independence, which is not really authoritative, um, but it's the basis for our our Constitution, which says here are the laws that regulate the land. Here's how you're supposed to manage the government, manage these affairs, and the first ten Bill of Rights talk about individual personal rights that we have. And the men who wrote those Bill of Rights were men who had just come out of a struggle with England in the Revolutionary War in the 1700s. And those men knew how a government can oppress people. So they said, we're going to write 10 things down that a government cannot, shall not ever do, and that no one can change in this Constitution. So here's this legal document that starts out by saying these 10 rights cannot be infringed on, cannot be changed or modified 
were taken away. The Second Amendment is the one that says we have the right to keep and to bear arms. So every individual in the United States has the, and these are God-given rights, by the way, not, not rights granted by the government. They're God-given. Um, the government's only there to make sure you have them. So you have these rights. The First Amendment is the right to say what you want. Free speech. We can speak on whatever topic we want to, whether we upset somebody or not. That's the whole point of free speech. Second Amendment is you have the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, other amendments, you have the right of assembly. We can assemble together. You can't tell us. We, the government cannot come in and say, you can't assemble together anymore. Because if you go to a dictatorship, that's how they control the people. You can't assemble. You can't say what you want, or that's called sedition, and they'll take you to court for saying anything against the government. Um, they take away arms and guns so that you can't maintain your freedom. So that's what they're talking about here is the Constitution enumerates God-given rights and then expands on rights. Um, and just because the Constitution says it's right, does that mean we can do it? So that's the question. Are we going to fear God or are we going to run to the Constitution? When we go, every day we get up, do we say, okay, I'm going to do this or not do this? Do I go to the Word of God to determine that or do I go to the Constitution to determine that? And I would say go to both. But which one do you go to first? The Word of God. If God says yes, it's okay. If he says no, it's not okay. Then you go to the Constitution. You know, as long as it's in line with God, you're good to go. As long as it, when it's not, <laughs> sorry, Constitution uh, is a human document that's sinking with the Titanic, by the way. So these are sinking documents, not on a sinking ship. Um, anybody have any just thoughts on that? I don't know if I'm hitting the mark, yeah. First Corinthians 6, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. That is, help my life out. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's good to do. All right. Oops. Question number four. How do we apply these scriptures to our day in a democratic republic? That is, the First Amendment, the rule of law, legal system, etc. Which scriptures? All of them? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't 100% sure. Some of these questions had a context in their order, yeah. and I broke the order, but uh, tried to retain the context. But how do scriptures apply to a democratic republic, I guess is the question. I think it might be because we had some visitors a few weeks ago where they were feeling what I always feel, is like, gosh, our country's falling apart, and you're telling me I shouldn't be doing anything? And they were a bit frustrated with that, which is very understandable. And so they voiced it, which I was glad they did. Um, uh, you should hear me at home. Um, and so where I thought, felt like that they, they needed to sort things out, and it takes time to sort this out, can take weeks, months, and even years to sort through all this, and to let the Word of God in its totality shape your mind and heart and focus on it. Like I say, I went through two years of it, you know, 20 years ago. So I know what it is to go through it and what it takes and to let the Word of God, because some of the things the Word of God says, you know, it's like, 
Okay, I'm supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm not supposed to go out there necessarily and throw myself into, you know, trying to get some president elected. You know, even though that's not a bad thing, is that the most expedient thing for my purpose and goal in life? And you have to work through those things. So I get it. So how do you apply these scriptures to our day in a democratic republic? I think it's pretty simple. Whatever God says goes. He says, this is what you're supposed to be doing, this is what you're supposed to be doing, no matter who opposes you, you do it. If the word of God says you're not supposed to be doing those things, it doesn't matter who says you can do those things, you don't do it. Are we to take these scriptures and apply them to the government? Well, that starts to get into theonomy. Do you really want to go there? When are you going to stop? If you say the government, for example, who was the first group of people in the United States to have government define the nature of marriage? To actually have the government define what is marriage. It was not the LGBTQ community. It was Christians. It's called the Defense of Marriage Act. Remember? We were the first stupid ones to make government define that institution. We were dumb as rocks. That sounded really good, right? Didn't it sound good? The government should define marriage as between one man and one woman, right? Isn't that what we, did that sound good? And what happened to that? Once we gave the government the right to define marriage, what did the secular government do with that? Redefined it in their terms. It is utterly foolish for Christians to pursue any kind of theonomy. You're just asking to be socked in the face 10 years later and wish you hadn't done it. The government's supposed to be doing its job, but according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, we're not going to worry about those that are without. It's those that are within that we address in terms of moral things that are going on. Those that are without, God judges, and they are in God's hands. Now, as citizens, we can certainly vote. As citizens, we can advocate. But be careful what you advocate for. Do not go into theonomy. You do not want it. Read the history of England. Read the history of Europe when the church said it was in charge of the world. Medieval Europe was a time of what? Just great blessing and free. Was that what it was? Yeah. England. The history of England. Hundreds of years of what? Persecution because church and state were joined together. Do we really want to try that again? Right. Stay way away from it. So how do scriptures apply to a democratic republic? Vote. Protest if you must. Just make sure that's the best way to spend your time and energy. At, you know, be an activist if you must, as long as before you go door to door for your favorite candidate, have you gone door to door for your favorite savior? Yeah. Yeah, and can I, I just want to pick up on that. The, um, it can be interpreted by some like those, that couple a few weeks ago um, that were saying do nothing. We're saying keep doing what you ought to be doing at all times, which is preaching the gospel, loving the brethren, being holy yourself, watching for the brethren. Really what we do before Biden and after Biden or whenever is really the same. It's just we're doing it in a more hostile environment now. Now, with regard to with regard to some of the 
potential persecution that is now coming down the pipe, we want to be really wise. So it, like Steve said, it would be good, know your constitution better, Bill of Rights, um, local laws, those sorts of things. Get schooled on them so that when certain things come, we have ways to appeal, potentially, and that kind of thing. But outside of that, we're really just supposed to be continuing to do what we ought to be doing. And, and in my view, I really hope that we become even more galvanized in our mission because the culture gets darker and darker. They need hope. One of the things on this documentary that was really riveting that I mentioned earlier was the business owner that was getting protested by Black Lives Matter because he wouldn't donate or support Black Lives Matter. Um, one of the things that became interesting to him was that he learned that this is not a race issue. This is a spiritual demonic issue. Because when they came to protest, guess who else was there? Every other social justice warrior for every other social justice cause under the sun. It wasn't just BLM. LGBTQ was there. The trans folks were there. All of them were there. Right? Drug, I can't remember. There was some other person there even legalizing drugs. or I can't remember what it was. But they were all there. And what, what became clear to him was this is a spiritual war that is fought with the gospel. Not with legislation. Not with even just cogent argument. It's preach. <laughs> and so he said, okay, you guys want to come protest? We're going to preach. So they came and protested his shop, their restaurant, and they came and preached. Because that's how we fight as Christians. That's how we war, with love and with the gospel. And so, yeah, this is not about us not doing anything. This is about us doing even more what we ought to be doing anyway, which is preach. We have the words of eternal life. So, um, yeah. Amen. So I think that's... But be wise, you know, there in which you live. Know your laws. Don't be ignorant to those things. Know them to a certain degree so that we can appeal in those times. We may have to make some serious decisions as a church um, in the not-too-distant future. And we want to be able to. But as James Coates realized, though, in Canada, even though you know laws, and he would appeal to those laws, they don't really care if they want to make an example of you. And if they want to make an example of you, you can't really do anything about it other than to be a witness for Jesus in the midst of it all. Yep. So we have to recognize that, too. So. Cosmic justice will trump any law that's been made. Yeah, right. There's a good book, Thomas Sowell, The Quest for Cosmic Justice. It will really help you see the bottom line on a lot of things. Maybe one more question because we're yeah. at oh, okay. 1233. Can, should we vote? Yes. Can we vote? Okay, does God say you shouldn't vote? Okay. Does God say you should vote? Okay. Just be a responsible citizen. I would put this in Titus sort of as a application of Titus where you're supposed to, you know, be amenable. You're supposed to take thought for things honorable in the sight of all men, Romans 12. All these things is, is vote. And one of the things, if you don't vote good, then who's going to end up winning? Mm-hmm. All right. So, you know, vote for the things, and then the question becomes, should you vote your conscience? Should you vote for policy? Who was it? Bless his heart, he was here a few weeks ago. He wanted to talk about all that. I was like, okay, I'm almost 70 years old. You know, I'm going to vote for the guy who's going to give me the best laws and the best shot at having a peaceful and quiet life and to preach the gospel. I don't really care about the rest. You know, because they were, what, in this last election, some prominent preachers... We're saying you should look at a man's character. I'm like, a man's character does what for me? I don't even know this person. It's what is a man's policies. That is what will do something for me or do something against me. 
you know? And besides, when you start comparing character, they, they all fall so short, they're in an abyss so deep, you can't even, re, you can't even notice them with a radar gun. I mean, the, their character is all in the tubes. So the idea of we should vote for Christian character, it's, you know, the typical for, statement is we're not voting for Sunday school teachers, we're voting for people who are going to slug it out with rattlesnakes, and hopefully they can establish policy. So I voted for the guy who was going to put Supreme Court justices in that, to me, are the safeguard for, for America. Um, so that's what I did on that one. Anyway, should we, can we vote? Yep, vote. If you don't vote, you don't have a right to complain. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, there's a lot of complaining going on right now with a lot of people who are very anti-Trump, um, which is interesting. Because, I mean, I get it, but it's too late. So you have to yeah. deal with your con- deal with the consequences. One of the things, too, that I thought was very interesting, when Chris and I were with the black pastors, and it was a very good experience, I thought. That doesn't mean I, I thought there were a lot of great things going on necessarily, but it was a good experience to be in the middle of it. And two of the black pastors were really solid, really good. The other one was real iffy. Uh, but the two black pastors, they were very vocal, and I was glad for them to be. But even them, they would say, well, there was this. They, they seemed to have an issue with the Clinton crime bill, so I was still trying to look that up. And, and, but everybody voiced that, so I'm like, I guess there's something to it. But the point was eventually made by one of them, and I took it up and reinforced it, is that if you keep voting for bad people in government, guess what kind of government you're going to get? And when the 20 cities in America, most populated cities that have most of the poverty, have been governed by a certain group of people for 60 years, do you think electing them again is going to change things? I mean, this is kind of common sense. But it escapes communities, particularly poor communities. They still don't get that if I keep voting these turkeys in, they're going to keep, you know, scamming me. They'll have lots of rhetoric, but I'll never see anything. As the lady on the Wendy's commercial from 20 years ago said, where's the beef? And when they don't come up with the beef, it's like maybe you should elect a different group because I can't help you when you keep electing people that destroy your community. And it's not my fault. And so what happens is they elect turkeys who destroy their communities and then they blame it on me. And I'm like, I, you know, I can't do anything when you've elected a whole set of city council people that just defund police and do all this other crazy stuff. I, I can't change that. Yeah, and when, you, and when you're voting for people who are quote-unquote electable, whatever that means, whatever you want to pour into that, you're in trouble. Because if you're voting for a personality rather than policy, you're going to get that every time. If you feel like, here's a guy who's coming, he's really sympathetic to all my needs, and yet his policies historically have been for more oppressive situations, state of affairs, then just learn from the policy, not from the character, but of course, or the personality, because that'll get you in the same spot you've been in. So, yeah, yeah policy is really everything as far as government goes. People over-spiritualize the presidency. Um, it's interesting because they're the, some, of the, some of them are the ones that want to say that it's not the church's job to be political. Um, but then they'll write all these things about the certain character or the demeanor or the presentation of the president is, is untenable and these sorts of things. And you're just like, well, wait a minute, you know. It sounds like you're saying something different now. But anyway, most, some of you know who I'm talking about. But, yeah. So. But, uh, 
Anyway, so it's not the church's job to fix America. That's your responsibility as a citizen to do what you can as a Christian, not as someone whose hope is in this world. So, amen. That's it. Well, we got through five questions. We'll get through more next week. You want to pray? Sure. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to your throne, and uh, Lord, we just thank you that you're in charge of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we see what happens when men get in charge of the world. They will go and build the Tower of Babel first, thing they, first chance they get. And uh, Lord, we used to be part of that. We used to amen it. We amen. used to uh, contribute to it. We used to be happy with the little bit of it that we knew of. And for the most part, all we cared was about our own self. And uh, Lord, you rescued us from all that. You brought us into a kingdom that doesn't fade away, a kingdom that doesn't p- depend on military might to prop itself up doesn't depend on rhetoric or indoctrination. Oh, Lord, it just depends on your grace, your Holy Spirit, and your word of truth that stands forever. Amen. Uh, Lord, just pray that you would just work your Holy Scriptures deep into our bones, into our souls. Oh, Lord, we know and we've all experienced just, we're reading through your Bible and it's a simplest little phrase or a turn of statement um, that we didn't think applied to something and you apply it to our lives and it gives us clarity and a sense of things and uh, just a, a renewed uh, ability to have focus on, on your kingdom. And Lord, we just pray that you would always do that. Always keep us in your truth. Always keep us in your love. Always keep us in your grace. Always keep us in that blessed privilege we have to, Lord, to hold forth the word of life. And when that word of life comes in conflict with the secular state and with a world that's just arrayed against you, that, Lord, you've granted us to be able to suffer in so many different ways. Lord, always give us grace to do it, to do it wisely, to do it well, to do it as Christians, not to take it personal, not to be like Moses and get all fed up and start beating the rock, but to recognize that we are ambassadors for you. It is our privilege to represent you. Like uh, As Chris has described, this man who's going to answer the wrath of, of human beings against God, answer it with the gospel. Uh, Lord, not to fix America, not even to stick it in their face. But, uh, Lord, in hopes that here's an audience that's been gathered, they're not ever going to go to church, that's for sure. Hmm. But, Lord, they're going to hear a gospel. Uh, And, uh, Lord, that you would save some, as you always do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.